Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with the first story today, which is Boris Johnson and comments he made in a newspaper column about headwear for Muslim women. This is in The Independent. Boris Johnson faces growing backlash over gratuitously offensive kneecap remarks as top Tories rally against him. Pressure is mounting on Boris Johnson to apologise over his gratuitously offensive remarks about women wearing kneecaps as a series of senior Conservative MPs rallied against the former Foreign Secretary. Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davidson questioned whether Mr Johnson would ever write about having a debate on banning Christians from wearing crucifixes, after the Uxbridge MP suggested in his Daily Telegraph column that those who wore headscarves resembled bank robbers and letterboxes. Former Attorney General Dominic Grieve even suggested he would leave the Tories if Mr Johnson was elected leader, claiming I don't regard him as a fit and proper person to lead the political party. In one of the most critical comments of Mr Johnson's column, Ms Davidson suggested the incendiary remarks were calculated. I think that this wasn't an off-the-cuff slip. He wrote a column. He knew exactly what he was doing, and I think it crossed from being provocative and starting a debate, and actually it became rude and gratuitous, she said. While the Scottish Tory leader, who was seen as a rising star in the party, said she agreed with the sentiment of the article that face-covering veil should not be banned, Ms Davison added, I think it's also not been shown through history that when men make sweeping statements about what women should or shouldn't wear, that it goes well for them, she said. The former cabinet minister and Conservative Party chairman, Lord Pickles, also warned that Mr Johnson could face disciplinary action unless he was prepared to back down. Disciplinary action just for stating an opinion. An observation. The article goes on. He said the party has various procedures if an official complaint were to be made. He said the party has various procedures if an official complaint were to be made, although he said it would be a very big leap to suggest that it could lead to his expulsion. Pretty much inconceivable, but you never know how these things develop, he told the BBC Radio 4 Today programme. Lord Sheikh, a Conservative peer and founder of the Conservative Muslim Forum, told BBC Newsnight the party should take severe action. Take the whip from him. Why not? He's not a superhuman being. He's a member of the party, he said. The party chairman, the prime minister, has the right to take the whip. That's the thing I'd like to see. The remarks from senior Tories came after both Theresa May and Brandon Lewis, the chairman of the party, called on Mr Johnson to apologise for his offensive remarks. But Mr Johnson's former parliamentary private secretary and Tory MP Connor Burns defended the former secretary of state on social media, suggesting that his colleagues were desperate in their criticisms. We are now into full bandwagon jumping territory on the Boris Johnson article, he said, and the Tory backbench and Nadine Doris claimed the attacks on Mr Johnson were being led by those in the Remain wing of the party who feared a possible leadership challenge to the Prime Minister. The campaign to stop Boris becoming leader is underway in a very crass and cat-handed way, she wrote on Twitter. And there's another article here on the same subject, also in The Independent. Conservative Party Chairman tells Boris Johnson to apologise for Islamophobic kneecap remarks. Conservative Party Chairman Brandon Lewis has asked Boris Johnson to apologise after suggesting Muslim women wearing kneecaps resembled letterboxes and bank robbers. It comes after the former Foreign Secretary faced condemnations from across the political divide for the inflammatory remarks he made in a column on Monday. In the most high-profile intervention so far, Mr Lewis said he agreed with one of his Tory colleagues that Mr Johnson's comments were offensive. And? And? But Labour said an apology was not good enough and called on Theresa May to condemn the newspaper column unequivocally. Earlier, Alistair Burt, a Foreign Office Minister, told the BBC Radio 4's Today programme, I would never have made such a comment. I think there is a degree of offence in that. Absolutely right. What he was trying to make 
a serious point about is the UK government will not enforce any clothing restriction on anyone. Writing what he was trying to make a serious point about is the UK government will not enforce any clothing restriction on anyone. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, the former Foreign Secretary described the burqa as ridiculous and weird and said women wearing them look like letterboxes or bank robbers. His remarks came after Denmark decided to impose fines on those wearing the religious headgear in the streets. Lady Warsi accused Mr Johnson of adopting the dog whistle tactics of former Donald Trump aide Steve Bannon in the hope of attracting support from right-wing Tories for an eventual leadership bid. Repeating a call for an independent inquiry into Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, Lady Warsi told Channel 4 News Muslim women should not be a useful political battleground for old Etonians. It is crass and it must stop and it must be condemned by the leadership right from the Prime Minister down. Labour shadow women and equalities minister Nash Shah added an apology isn't good enough. Boris Johnson's comments weren't accidental, they were a calculated attack in a national newspaper made weeks after he reportedly met with Steve Bannon. I suggested to Brandon Lewis yesterday that the former foreign secretary needs to attend training and engagement with the Muslim community for Muslims to have any faith that the Conservative Party has taken this issue seriously. Clearly the Tory party has an issue with Islamophobia, but over 24 hours later the Prime Minister is still yet to say a word. I suggested to Brandon Lewis yesterday that the former Foreign Secretary needs to attend training and engagement with the Muslim community for Muslims to have any faith that the Conservative Party has taken this issue seriously. Clearly the Tory party has an issue with transphobia, but over 24 hours later the Prime Minister has still yet to say a word. Theresa May must condemn Boris Johnson's comments unequivocally in order of an inquiry into Islamophobia in her party. Downing Street has so far avoided criticising a former Foreign Secretary for his newspaper column, with the spokesperson for the Prime Minister on Monday saying only the long-standing government position on this is clear, we do not support a ban on wearing of the veil in public. Such a prescriptive approach would be out of keeping with British values such as religious intolerance and gender equality. But the Conservative MP Andrew Bridgen said Mr Johnson did not need to apologise. He told BBC Radio Force the World at One programme the former Foreign Secretary had been trying to raise the subject in a light-hearted way. I think if you can get your point across with a little bit of humour, it's very much appreciated by the public, he added. Boris is seen as a clear challenger for the leadership in due course, and it's interesting the characters Alistair Burt love him to bits and the party chairman, and we all know which side they are batting on. Well, first of all, from my point of view, the burqa or niqab or hijab does look like a letterbox, and it does make you look like a bank robber. Will I apologise for stating that opinion? If anyone takes offence? Or in case anyone takes offence? No. Should I? No, because I'm only making an observation. I'm only stating my opinion. If people are going to be offended, they've made that choice. People say, you can't say that, it's offensive. And? And? People have made the choice to be offended. If you're not trying to be intolerant, and phobic or offensive then there's no reason for you to apologize people's feelings and reaction to what you say are irrelevant don't matter at all to your right to say what you think after you've said what you said it's up to the person reacting to it not you the only way to bring an end to this nonsense of people being told to apologize for what they say when they're just saying what they think or in this case making an observation is to stand up to it and say what you think that's the only way we're going to bring an end to it 
This is a nothing story in comparison to more important subjects and it's ludicrous it's got so much attention in the media, but I cover it only to make the point that what I'm saying can be said without even thought of an apology if someone takes offence to it. There's the Mercy or Mersai group of people in Africa and they put plates in their mouths, they call them lip plates. If you go into Google Images and type in lip plates you can see what I mean. It looks ridiculous to me. Why do you want to put a plate in your mouth for? Even if it is tradition, it still looks ridiculous. Am I not allowed to say that because it's offensive? I don't care, it looks ridiculous. When you look at religion, it's one of the greatest forms of mind control ever invented. And it's an exercise in control, conflict, division, suppression and limitation of perception of its followers. Religion is about dividing and ruling, playing beliefs off against each other, even within religions. There's division between different factions. It's about fear and little me who has to please some loving God who's so loving that if you don't live your life according to his will and believe every last word of the holy book and believe you're a sinner in need of salvation, he will send you to hell and a nightmare existence forever and ever. First of all, when you look at Christianity, there's two different versions of who God is. The Old and New Testament. So either God's bipolar or we're looking at PR operation here. There's a bloodthirsty, vengeful, warlike God of the Old Testament. And then there's the loving, caring, understanding God of the New Testament. And look at how popular Christianity is around the world. And yet there's no definitive answer as to who this God guy is. It's crazy. And yet you'll have extreme Christians. I emphasize extreme because a lot of Christians are just people who just want to live their lives and have their own belief without any conflict. But the extreme Christians, especially in North America and other places, will be in conflict with other religious followers, and yet they don't even know which version of God in the two testaments of their religion is the real God. They don't actually know who they're worshipping. And if the New Testament is supposed to be the truth, then what does that make the Old Testament? And how can any testament be considered the truth when it can be revised and updated so easily? I know we're talking about Islam with this story about Boris Johnson's remarks, but I use Christianity as an example to show how easy perception can be manipulated to the point where there's two different versions of who God is, both extremes of each other. And yet, instead of questioning that obvious contradiction, Christians just worship God anyway. And Christianity would be seen to be one of the more relaxed religions compared to some of the more extreme ones. I've described before how the body is a computer in episode 26 and there are certain computer programs running like race, culture, class, self-identity, politics and another is religion. The religions all think they're different but they're all the same. There's the deity, there's the place of worship like the church or temple, there's the middle man or woman usually in a frock like the vicar, there's the holy book which you have to believe every last word of otherwise you're a blasphemer and then there's the little me perception. It's a program. There will be exceptions here and there, but basically that's the program. Even some of the symbolism has the same origin, ultimately, when you actually research it. Religious followers are taught to believe without question every last word of a holy book written by who knows who, who knows when, and who knows what circumstances, and changed by who knows who, who knows when, and who knows what circumstances over the generations. They're told that everything you need to know can be found within the covers of one book. We're looking at a rigid, solid, and moving belief. I symbolise it as a block of concrete as opposed to bubbles in a shaken up fizzy drink bottle. The block of concrete is rigid and stuck where it is but the bubbles in the bottle can move at any time and go anywhere. The bottle could be shaken up or moved around at any time and the bubbles will go with it. In other words, a religious belief is a belief that won't change no matter what, like a computer program, which is what it is. 
which runs the same way forever, every time. Whereas when you look at having a perception of how things are at this point, as opposed to a belief, then it's only a perception at this point. By the end of the day, you might have a different view about parts of how you see things, or maybe even more than that, based on experience, information, etc., which will suggest to you that you need to think differently about a certain area of world events or whatever. So you're always willing to move, you're always willing to change your perception. And if you're wrong, then the first thought is not to be worried or to feel stupid. The first thought is, okay, so what's really going on then? A desire to know the truth and your perception will go wherever evidence and experience suggests going, rather than a desire to be proved right or to find out that you are right. I read a great quote once which said, I'm open to anything being true as long as evidence can be produced to support it. And that means anything without any preconceived idea, filtering, perception. People say, you can't just believe anything, but there's a key word in that quote, which is evidence, experience, information. There are two other words that could have been in there as well. If information and evidence can prove a particular thing to be true, then it's true. It's no good just deciding it's not because it's outside of your own limit of perception. And religion is fundamentally about limiting perception of possibility. I heard a great explanation once of all this, and it was that people go through life and they have a backpack on, walking down a path, the path of life. And some people are born, they walk down the path a little bit, then they pitch their tent. This is probably still the vast majority of people, even though more and more people are starting to look at the world differently. But these are people who believe what they're taught by authority, because authority in the system knows best and is always right. That's the perception we're given. Then, some people go a bit further and they might start to question how everything came about, but they'll get caught in religion or mainstream science or other one-stop-shop belief systems to explain in a simplistic way, not simple, simplistic, there's a difference. So they'll pitch their tent there. Then there's those who look at world events and decide they want to make a change. And these will be the Greens and the environmentalists and they'll often get caught up in the bollocks about human-caused climate change, which I talk about in episode 18. And they'll be calling for the most extraordinary transformation of human society and human existence in ways I describe in episode 18 on the back of a massive global lie. Some environmentalists tackle issues which genuinely need tackling, like fracking, for example, which I also talk about in episode 18. But the point is they stop at environmental issues and don't go any further. And maybe some of them might stretch to political issues in as much as it relates to environmental issues, but they basically stop at the environment and pitch their tent. Then some go a bit further, and they try to make change through politics. Waste of time, but that's what they do. And they'll become a follower or member of a particular party, maybe a local councillor, or in some cases even a member of parliament in that particular party. But they pitch their tent, and each time a tent is pitched, that's that person's belief, that's their identity, that's their perception. But then there's people like me who don't have a tent, who don't have a backpack, and people who reject the system in its entirety and just want to know the truth. This is the way we're going to change things. A movable perception is the only way to understand what's really going on in the world and that's the only way to change it. The next story today is on the subject climate change. This is in The Independent. Earth at risk of entering hothouse state from which there is no return, scientists warn. In a summer marked by global heat waves, wildfires and droughts, scientists have warned that things could get considerably worse under a future scenario dubbed hothouse earth. 
Even if greenhouse gas emissions are reduced, there is a chance human-induced global warming could trigger other processes which will lead to uncontrollable warming, the team at the Stockholm Resilience Centre said. As Amazon rainforest is destroyed, Arctic permafrost thaws and Antarctic sea ice melts, these natural feedback mechanisms that currently help store Earth's carbon will instead begin emitting it, scientists at the Swedish Institute warned. While it is unclear how likely this scenario is, experts agree that were it to happen, the runaway warming after this tipping point would be an existential threat to humanity. These tipping elements can potentially act like a row of dominoes, said Professor Johan Rockström, Executive Director of the Stockholm Resilience Centre. He goes on to say that once one is pushed over, it pushes Earth towards another. It may be very difficult or impossible to stop the whole row of dominoes from tumbling over. The prospect of such a situation has been laid out by Professor Rockström and his colleagues in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. We address tipping elements in the planetary machinery that might, once a certain stress level has been passed, one by one, change fundamentally, rapidly and perhaps irreversibly, explained Professor Hans Joachim Schnellnuber, director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. He says, this cascade of events may tip the entire Earth system into a new mode of operation. The article goes on. Global average temperatures are currently 1C above pre-industrial levels and under the Paris Climate Agreement, world governments have agreed to keep total warming below 2C. In the worst case scenario, the researchers predict the Earth's climate would stabilise at around 4 to 5C higher, hotter than any point for 1.2 million years, and with sea level increase up to 60 metres. Places on Earth will become uninhabitable if hothouse Earth becomes the reality, Professor Rockstrom said. Other scientists acknowledge the situation laid out in the new PNAS paper is uncertain, as it is somewhat speculative and not covered by most existing climate change predictions, but they nonetheless admitted it was plausible. In the context of the summer of 2018, this is definitely not a case of crying wolf raising a false alarm. The wolves are now in sight, said Dr. Phil Williamson, a climate researcher at the University of East Anglia, who was not involved in the work. Pointing out that evidence from geology shows Earth's climate system is inherently nervy, he said human processes to the mix could well exacerbate this. To avoid catastrophe, the researchers behind the new work said there was a need to move from exploitation to stewardship of the Earth, and not only reduce emissions but create new carbon stores by planting forests, conserving biodiversity and creating technologies to remove carbon dioxide from the air. However, they noted that while their runaway threshold may well be within the Paris target of 2C, this could be a point beyond which the risk of hot house earth will increase sharply. As for whether staying below this target and maintaining a stabilised earth is possible, climate scientist Professor Chris Rapley of University College London, who was also not involved in the study, did not have much hope. He said in the face of right-wing populism and climate change denial, drastically tackling the problem in the ways described seemed highly unlikely. Well, the problem is not what we're told it is. The article goes on. The future habitability of the planet thus appears to rest on chance, he said. That the sensitivity of the climate system to greenhouse gas emissions and other human disruptions is fortuitously very low, or that some other global-scale social calamity dramatically reduces human emissions before any runaway planetary threshold is breached. The latter offers cold comfort. Well, I've talked about climate change before in episode 18, and this is in a way a companion to what I say in episode 18 where I talk about why it's a vehicle for the most extraordinary transformation of human society on the basis of a lie as big as the planet is designed to be used to transform because it's not just that they need people to believe it to justify that transformation it's that if people find out it's a massive contract with the scale of changes being used to justify that pervades government, government organisations, mainstream media, mainstream science, corporations 
the fact that all of those areas of society were behind this lie, many people without realising, just repeating the official narrative, but many people knowingly behind it, then, as this article talks about, and I've said before, the domino effect. The first domino is human activity and carbon dioxide causes climate change is a lie. Then when that one goes, the next domino is seeing that all these different areas of society can be behind a lie as big as human caused climate change. This would then get people to have to massively reassess their perception of what the truth is and where it comes from, given they've been lied to through all these different avenues already. And then people will start thinking, well, if that was a massive lie, what else have I been lied to about? And the process starts other dominoes and other subjects falling. The elite don't want that, obviously, so they need to ensure that climate change lie, both its cause and its effect, in terms of the scale of climate change, is preserved and protected, because otherwise there are colossal dangers for them and their agenda. I've got a book here called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, and I'm going to quote from it, because it's full of studies and statistics and statements from professors and scientists and studied, learned people giving a very different view of climate change to the official version. So I'm going to quote a few bits from it. And I'm going to start with this one here. Principal research scientist in climatology at the University of Alabama Huntsville, Dr. Roy W. Spencer, has said, even if it is climate change, even if it is 100% caused by humans, is so slow that it cannot be observed by anyone in their lifetime. Hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts and other natural disasters have yet to show any obvious long-term change. This means that in order for politicians to advance policy goals, such as forcing expensive solar energy on the masses or creating a carbon tax, they have to turn normal weather disasters into evidence of climate change. Exactly. He goes on to say that they observe warming as monitored by satellites, our only truly global monetary system, has been only about half of what computerised climate models say should be happening. Well, if you put rubbish into a computer model, you get rubbish out. Another quote here from Alabama State Climatologist John R. Christie, PhD, University of Alabama, said in a meeting of the House Energy and Power Subcommittee on the 20th of September 2012, evidence suggests that climate models overreact to greenhouse gas increases. Well, if you put rubbish information into a computer model, you'll get rubbish information out. And that's what happens on some occasions. He goes on to say that also there is a lack of evidence to blame humans for an increase in extreme events. One cannot convict CO2 of causing any of these events because they've happened in the past before CO2 levels rose. The non-falsifiable hypotheses can be stated this way. Whatever happens is consistent with my hypothesis. In other words, there is no event that would falsify the hypothesis. As such, these assertions cannot be considered science or in any way informative since the hypothesis is fundamental prediction is anything may happen. In the example above, and he says that, for example, if winters became milder or they became snowier, the non-falsifiable hypothesis stands. This is not science, he says, and it's not. But if you've got a lie to sell, you don't want little things like the truth get. You don't want little things like the truth getting in the way. In this book, there's a graph which I found on the Environmental Protection Agency's official website, and it says underneath the graph. This figure shows the annual values of the U.S. heatwave index from 1895 to 2015. These data cover the contiguous 48 states. Contiguous meaning states that all share a border with each other. Interpretation. An index of value of 0.2, for example, could mean that 20% of the country experienced one heatwave, 10% of the country experienced two heatwaves, or some other combination of frequency and area resulted in this value. 
And on this graph, which I'll link to when I upload the episode, it shows a period between the 1930s and the 1940s where there was massively more value on the heatwave index than today. And there's been nothing like that since, according to this graph. There was a period in the 1900s, according to this graph, which was warmer than today. And there was a period in or around the 1920s that was hotter than the 2000s. There's also a lot of data fixing. Here's one example from this book. James Hansen, who was a NASA lead global warming scientist, he wrote in 1999, the US has warmed during the past century, but the warming hardly exceeds year to year variability. Indeed, in the US, the warmest decade was the 1930s and the warmest year was 1934. Hansen explained that in the US, there has been little temperature change in the past 50 years, the time of rapidly increasing greenhouse gases. In fact, there was a slight cooling throughout much of the country. And he produced a graph, which I will link to when I upload this episode. And by the way, when I say I'll link to such and such when I upload an episode, I'm talking about when I upload it on Podomatic. I should say that for people listening on iTunes and Sheenin. All the links included, whether it's a video or an image or an article, are included when I upload the episode on Podomatic, which is the podcast hosting website for pay-per-view. Anyway, it goes on in this book. Hansen showcased the following temperature graph of the continental US since 1880, showing a cooling trend from the 1930s. In 1989, the New York Times reported last week scientists from the United States Commerce Department's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said that a study of temperature readings for the contiguous 48 states over the last century showed there had been no significant change in average temperature over that period. Dr. Phil Jones said in a telephone interview today that his own results for the 48 states agreed with those findings. But a change in this temperature data soon occurred after Hansen wrote his 1999 analysis and presented his U.S. graph. Right after the year 2000, NASA NLAA dramatically altered U.S. climate history, making the past much colder and the present much warmer. As analysis by Tony Heller of Real Climate Science in 2015 showed, NASA cooled 1934 and warmed 1998 to make 1998 the hottest year in U.S. history instead of 1934. This alteration turned the long-term cooling trend since 1930 into a warming trend. And there's also a 2013 NASA temperature chart that looks very different from the 1999 version, which I'll also include a link to when I upload the episode. It's interesting that when you look at hurricanes in the United States, like Hurricane Irma, which hit Florida on September the 10th last year, there was a Category 4 hurricane, and Colorado State University meteorologist Philip Klotzbach's analysis of Irma found that it made, according to this book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, it made landfall in Florida at 929 millibars of landfall pressure. And a bar in this context is a metric unit of pressure, which atmospheric air pressure is often talked about as. And 929 millibars of landfall pressure means that it ties with the seventh most powerful storm to hit the American mainland since record keeping began in the 1850s. Hurricane Harvey ranked 18th at 938 millibars, placing it in a three-way tie with a hurricane in 1898 in Georgia in America and a hurricane Hazel in 1954. This is an article in the Washington Times from September last year. Not unprecedented, hurricanes Irma and Harvey ranked 7th, 18th after making landfall. 
Harvey and Irma were both powerful Category 4 hurricanes that wrought devastation after hitting the US coast, but they weren't unprecedented, ranking 7th and 18th in terms of landfall air pressure. An analysis by Colorado State University meteorologist Philip Klotzbach found that Hurricane Irma made landfall in Florida at 929 millibars, tying it for the 7th most powerful storm to hit the mainland since record-keeping began in the 1850s. Hurricane Harvey, which hit Texas on August 25th, ranked 18th at 938 millibars, placing it in a three-way tie with an 1898 Georgia hurricane and Hurricane Hazel in 1954. This chart comes with the two recent hurricanes fueling the debate over whether climate change driven by human greenhouse gas emissions has resulted in more extreme weather events. It hasn't. When I upload this episode, I'll include a link to a tweet where you can see the table referred to in this Washington Times article. And just one final point. It's worth bearing in mind that at the same time that we're being told fossil fuels are contributing towards global warming, they're not, but that's what we're being told. But at the same time, free energy technology, for which the only cost is the setup, exists now and has existed for decades, as I said in last week's episode. But we're not given access to that, not least because then they couldn't sell the human-caused climate change lie in the same way, but also because the idea is for people to be crippled financially en route to the Hunger Games society. And one of the ways to do that is energy bills and also it would give people a very different view of reality because of how the technology works and what it does to provide the energy so the lie is in the why but why well it's about carbon tax yes and more laws for more control yes on one level but only on one level it's also about justifying enormous change in society to transform society in the image of the very agenda i've been talking about since pay-per-view began this is how important the lie of human caused climate change is to them it also justifies the Hunger Games Society with the world government, the unelected bureaucratic elite, dictating to the unions like the European Union, which will then dictate to the megacity, mega-regions of each country, as we would call them now. It also justifies the smart grid and smart meters and smart cities, which are a fundamental part of the transhumanism agenda, which is the end of humanity as we know it. Next story today is on the subject of food additives. This is in The Independent. Man describes what happened to his body when he gave up fizzy drinks. Fitness journalist says giving up soda changed his life after becoming so hooked on the stuff that he kept a huge bottle of it on his desk at all times. Everyone watched that one life-changing moment. I had mine three years ago, Michael Fredson, 41, wrote in an article for Men's Health, declaring that his moment occurred when he gave up this sugary beverage for good. Fredson, who drank multiple cans of Coke daily into his adult years and who considered the creation of Coke Zero one of his happiest days, quit his habit once he realised that his soda intake may be ageing him prematurely. According to Fredson, it was after seeing the headline, Soda May Age You As Much As Smoking. On a 2014 study, they decided to quit once and for all, as only then did he realise the impact that soda was actually having on his body. Prior to giving up his daily indulgence of Diet Coke, Fredson was 20 pounds heavier than he is today and had high blood pressure. I felt unfocused, sluggish, bloated and depressed, he wrote. Through additional research into what exactly his habit was doing to his health, Fredson found that even diet soda is directly linked to a person's risk of obesity according to research from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Apart from a higher risk of obesity, eight years after the original study, the soda drinkers who drank one or more diet sodas a day were also found to have their average waist circumference increased by 3.16 inches. Research has also found drinking soda can cause infertility, increase the risk of certain cancers and contribute to diabetes and high blood pressure. 
For Friedson, the effects of quitting soda were noticeable instantly. I instantly began to think more clearly and have more energy, he wrote. One month in, I noticed I could cheat more at meal times and still lose weight. I realised my abs were more defined. And most importantly for Friedson, he is now often told he looks good for his age with his original motivation for giving up the sugar-loaded beverages. Fortunately, soda consumption is down globally from the 49 gallons of soda per person that was being consumed yearly, although there were still significant ways to go. To beat the habit, Friedson offered his own recommendations, a five-step plan which he developed alongside experts from the National Institutes of Health, Emory University and Tufts University. 1. Find a replacement. 2. Make a habit. 3. Reward yourself right. 4. Resist the marketing. 5. Take a sip. Avoid a slip. Most former soda drinkers promise that after six months of no soda, the taste will be too sweet to enjoy. Although it may sound like a daunting task, according to Friedson, giving up soda is easier than you think. There's another element here to the effects of drinking many of these fizzy drinks. I don't know about all of them, but many of them, and that's additives like aspartame, which is the worst additive that I've seen anyway, and others which are excitotoxins or neurotoxins, in other words, brain toxins. Any word with neuro in front of it means brain. Excitotoxin means that the additive over a period of time excites brain cells and destroys them and stops the brain working to full capacity for clarity and sharpness of thought. Now, of course, the people making the soft drinks and adding aspartame and other additives to them don't know any of this. They just do their job because that's what they've been told to do. It's at a higher level where they know this information and that's why they do it. This is the shift in perception people need if they're going to understand human society. It's not done because these corporations like Coca-Cola, especially Coca-Cola, don't know the effects of additives like aspartame. It's done because they do know the effects. It's not by accident, but by design. The scam that's played is to make people fat through crap food and drink, and then offer people diet food and drink to help them lose weight, which is filled with additives which affect body and brain in very negative ways. The scam that's played is to make people fat through crap food and drink, and then offer people diet food and drink to help them lose weight, which is filled with additives which affect body and brain in very negative ways. The scam is to get people to believe that high cholesterol caused by fatty foods makes people fat, and causes heart attacks and other health problems. And what they've done, which is clever really, is associating the public mind the word for body mass with the word for a food group. So people will associate the two with one causing the other. I'm going to quote a few studies now from a book called Low Cholesterol Leads to an Early Death. Evidence from 101 Scientific Papers. And what this author, David Evans, a qualified nutritional advisor, has done is look into scientific literature with an open mind and without any preconceived idea, which is the only credible way to research anything. I should say a couple of things. One, I have seen it suggested that artificial trans fats are different. I don't know the veracity of that, but I've seen it said, so I'm not necessarily talking about artificial trans fats with what I'm talking about now, which is regular fat. Also, I'm not a medical expert and I'm not giving this as advice that should be taken over a doctor or nutritionist. What I'm saying is, we know what the official story is. Here's some alternative information from qualified, learned people, and they say something very different. Now make your own mind up. I'll link to these studies when I upload this episode. High density versus low density lipoprotein cholesterol as the risk factor for coronary artery disease and stroke in old age. And to make more sense of that, low density 
Lipoprotein means the particles tend to be less dense than other kinds of cholesterol particles. Lipoproteins, lipoproteins are particles that transport triglycerides and cholesterol in the blood between all the tissues of the body, and triglycerides are defined as an ester formed from glycerol and three fatty acid groups. Triglycerides are the main constituents of natural fats and oils. So I hope that makes it a bit clearer. <laughs> High density versus low density lipoprotein cholesterol as the risk factor for coronary artery disease and stroke in old age. Background. A high total serum cholesterol level, serum in this context means blood plasma. The aim of this study was to evaluate the relationships between low density lipoprotein and high density lipoprotein cholesterol levels and mortality from specific causes among people in the oldest age categories. Methods. Between September the 1st, 1997 and September the 1st, 1999, a total of 705 inhabitants in the community of Leiden in the Netherlands reached the age of 85 years. Among these people, we initiated a prospective follow-up study to investigate determinants of successful ageing, in other words, factors of successful ageing. A total of 599 subjects participated, a response rate 87%, and all were followed up to September 2001. Serum levels of total LDL and HDL cholesterol were assessed. The main outcome measure was all-cause and specific mortality risk. An all-cause means, in a statistical context, the total number of deaths due to that condition during a specific time period. Results. During four years of follow-up, 152 subjects died. The leading cause of death was cardiovascular disease. The conclusion is, in contrast to high HDL cholesterol level, low HDL cholesterol level is a risk factor for mortality from coronary artery disease and stroke in old age. Next one now. Decline in serum total cholesterol and the risk of death from cancer. Abstract. We investigated whether decline over time in serum cholesterol was associated with the risk of death from cancer in French men. We studied 6,230 working men aged 43 to 52 years in 1967 to 1972 who had at least three annual measurements of serum cholesterol. And serum in this context means blood plasma. We estimated individual change over time in serum total cholesterol. During an average of 17 years of follow-up after the last examination, 747 subjects died from cancer. The group with the highest declining cholesterol displayed an excess risk for most cancer sites. These associations were more pronounced in subjects whose weight remained stable or decreased over time than in those who gained weight. And of course, it's always important to bear in mind that with these studies, there could be other factors as well that will influence the findings. But this is what these studies say anyway. Another one now. The value of serum albumin and high density lipoprotein cholesterol in defining mortality risk in older persons with low serum cholesterol. Serum albumin means the most abundant protein in human blood plasma. It constitutes about half of serum protein and it's produced in the liver. Objectives to investigate the relationship between low cholesterol and mortality in older persons to identify using information collected at a single point in time subgroups of persons with low and high mortality risk. During the follow-up period, according to these results, of the 4,128 participants, 64% women, age 70 and older and it says the mean after adjustment for age and gender persons with low cholesterol had significantly higher mortality than those with normal and high cholesterol among subjects with low cholesterol those with higher albumin had a significant risk reduction compared with those with low albumin and the conclusion is older persons with low cholesterol constitute a diverse group with regard to health characteristics and mortality risk another one here journal of epidemiology 
Low cholesterol is associated with mortality from stroke, heart disease and cancer. And this is a GHG medical school cohort study. Background, we investigated the relationship between low cholesterol and mortality and examined whether that relationship differs with respect to cause of death. Methods. A community-based prospective cohort study was conducted in 12 rural areas in Japan. The study subjects were 12,334 healthy adults aged 14 to 69 years who underwent a mass screening examination. Serum total cholesterol was measured by an enzymatic method, which means method relating to enzymes. The outcome was total mortality by sex and cause of death. Information regarding cause of death was obtained from death certificates and the average follow-up period was 11.9 years. And the conclusion is low cholesterol was related to high mortality even after excluding deaths due to liver disease from the analysis. High cholesterol was not a risk factor for mortality. So there's just a few studies that point to the fact that cholesterol may not be what we're told it is. And this book, Low Cholesterol Leads to an Early Death, is full of studies. The subtitle of the book is Evidence from 101 scientific papers as I said earlier and people just have to make their own minds up about what the studies say but when people look at health and the body with an open mind and actually taking the time to find out for themselves rather than just taking what they're told by doctors, nurses etc and the medical profession and pharmaceutical corporations they find a very different story to what we're told to believe about the body and when you've got a depopulation agenda, you want people believing what you want them to believe about the body rather than knowing the truth about the body. So when you put all this together, there's a clear sequence that emerges and it's by design. Get people consuming shite food and drink and make them fat in the process. Offer them diet food and drink filled with additives and sugar which contributes to weight gain. Diet food and drink affects body brain in very negative ways. And then they'll go to the doctor who will prescribe them drugs which affect their health and make them even worse and of course this all contributes also to the depopulation agenda which I've talked about many times before in pay-per-view it's all by design because ultimately it's known what the effects will be on body and brain it's all about increased toxicity to change our world effects on the brain to stop the brain working to full capacity and people being able to think clearly and sharply and depopulation The final story today is on the subject of YouTube and the war on alternative information being waged by these internet giants of Silicon Valley. This is in the Daily Mail. YouTube will now place Wikipedia entries about global warming below videos refuting evidence of rising temperatures. YouTube is fighting back against climate change deniers by implementing a fact-checking box below user-uploaded videos on the controversial topic. The system will surface information from Wikipedia or Britannica Encyclopedia to display factual information in bite-sized chunks below videos on climate change. Wikipedia, one of the least reliable sources of information on the internet, and Britannica Encyclopedia, which just communicates the official version of everything. The article goes on. YouTube already implemented the feature for videos on a slew of other contentious topics, including the MMR vaccination, the moon landing, and UFOs. However, this is the first time the platform has targeted climate change deniers. The feature is the latest step from the Google and video platform in its battle to reduce the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories on the service. It's not to reduce the spread of misinformation. It's to reduce the spread of truthful, credible, alternative information challenging the official narrative. 
the article goes on. Users who upload their content to YouTube cannot stop the service displaying blurbs of factual information below their content. Well, they can because it won't be about displaying factual information. It will be about displaying information supporting the official narrative. The article goes on. The feature, which was first announced in March, was initially intended to be used for videos on topics like the Oklahoma bombing and moon landing. This month, YouTube has since expanded the fact-checking feature to include more controversial subjects like the MMR vaccination and a perceived link to autism. The introduction of climate change information marks the first time YouTube has strayed into the scientific realm. At the moment, the scientific fact-checking blurbs are only visible to US-based users. However, YouTube is slowly rolling out the feature to viewers worldwide. Of course they are. In one example of the updated feature, a Wikipedia snippet read multiple lines of scientific evidence show that the climate system is warming. Well, multiple scientists and scientific studies show that human-caused climate change is a nonsense and the warming of the climate is massively hyped. And I'll get to that in the next story. The article goes on. A YouTube spokesperson has previously confirmed there will be a time delay from when a Wikipedia page is edited to when it appears on preview beneath the video. This is designed to allow Wikipedia editors time to catch any discrepancies that sneak under the radar. No, it's designed to catch any truthful information challenging the official narrative that sneaks under the radar. I'd guess that it will have some influence, at least on these people who don't know much about the subject. Anthony Lyseritz, director of the Yale Programme on Climate Change Communication, told BuzzFeed News. That's the idea. Users who do no research of their own and just see these boxes underneath the videos will believe whatever the box says. Might be confusing to some people, but that's probably better than just accepting the denial of video at face value, says Anthony Lyseritz. Now what about not accepting the official narrative at face value? The article goes on. YouTube initially neglected to tell Wikipedia that it would be using its content for this purpose, but contact between the two firms has since taken place with the site working together to combat the propagation of inaccurate information. A post by Wikipedia to its users and administrators revealed a list of seven topics YouTube would be using Wikipedia information for on its site, including the MMR vaccine and global warming. That list will massively expand. The article goes on. When the new Wikipedia blurb policy took effect in July, YouTube did not publicly confirm climate change was an impacted topic. Users were not notified of the change, but the change only noticed once the blurb started to appear sporadically on certain videos. The Heartland Institute, a think tank that posts videos questioning climate change, confirmed it was not informed of the change by YouTube. Meanwhile, PragerU, a non-profit online institution that has also been affected by the recent addition of climate change to the future, says the latest update is an example of YouTube displaying political bias. Well, all these social media and internet giants are displaying political bias, not least because of their connection to the Pentagon and DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon. The article goes on. Despite claiming to be a public forum and a platform open to all, YouTube is clearly a left-wing organisation. Craig Strazeri, PragerU's chief marketing officer, said, well, I would say extreme right in terms of its true mentality. He goes on to say, this is just another mistake in a long line of giant missteps that erodes America's trust in big tech, much like what has already happened with the mainstream news media. It's not a mistake. This war on alternative information by the social media and internet giants is not happening by accident. It was always the plan. The idea was to get enough of a monopoly, and then when you've got enough of a monopoly, then show your true colours which is what we're seeing now with these internet giants. The article goes on. 
YouTube says the policy is designed to give users easy access to external information to provide context and information on topics prone to misinformation. Context, don't believe that for a second. How can you have context when it's just a box below a video? The article goes on. It is also revealed that in the coming months more videos will see the labels appearing. Yeah, of course they will. The idea is that all videos challenging the official narrative in any way will have these labels, these boxes underneath them. I welcome this change, Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist at Texas Tech University told BuzzFeed News. She goes on to say, I appreciate that YouTube has taken their responsibility seriously to help people understand the difference. It's not about helping people understand the difference between true information and fake news. It's about targeting truthful information, challenging the official narrative. Jason Reifler, a political science professor in the University of Exeter, also lavished praise on YouTube for making the move. They could have chosen wording that's stronger and gets more to what the real terms of debate are between the extremely well-supported consensus scientific video versus the much, much smaller proportion of skeptics, Dr. Reifler told BuzzFeed News. I'm doubtful this first step is going to do much, but I hope it does. Well, this is another example of how these internet giants like YouTube and Google are massively dictating what people see and don't see. Dictating information received to dictate perceptions formed from information received. And it's not just about dictating what people see and don't see and hear and don't hear. More than that, it's about dictating what people can and cannot know. Information is formed from information received. Therefore, if you dictate what people can and cannot see and hear, you dictate on what they can and cannot know. And that's what it's about. All the time people spend on technology, looking at social media, YouTube and searching with Google. And what they're getting constantly is the official version of everything. And then you've got the mainstream media on top of that, which is communicating the same information. Google is using algorithms to suppress web pages and websites challenging the official narrative. YouTube, owned by Google, are shadow banning by either suppressing content from a certain channel or blocking it. And in other cases, they are outright banning users and deleting all the content from those channels. With no explanation whatsoever, the user just gets told they've broken the community guidelines. But there's no real explanation. And the idea that Google and YouTube care about their users is just ludicrous. If they did care, they wouldn't be suppressing and deleting information. The community guidelines are not there to make YouTube a better nice of experience for everyone. They are there to use them as the excuse for why certain content creators are banned. All this stuff about copyright on YouTube, yes, it's there because YouTube and Google don't want to be sued, but it's also there to use that as another excuse to ban or delete content from certain content creators. Comments on YouTube are not there to encourage lively open discourse and so people can comment on videos of what they think of them because it's good to have comments. The comments are there so that YouTube owned by Google control that data and use it to find out what people think of videos on certain subjects, not least in relation to world events. The poll option on Facebook. The poll option on Facebook is not there so people can create fun polls and find out what their friends think about certain topics, often of no importance. The poll option is there so Facebook control that data and use it to find out what people think of certain subjects. It's all an exercise in data gathering, profiling and tracking. The internet giants in Silicon Valley, which should get far more attention than it does, not least because it has fundamental links to the intelligence arena and the Pentagon through DARPA, as I talk about in episode 19, now have the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen, and we've seen nothing yet, and that's by design. I've mentioned before a meme I saw which basically pointed out that the intelligence agencies realised they didn't have to spy on you, 
although they are through Amazon's Alexa, another Silicon Valley internet giant. Not in location, but in spirit, or lack of it, in truth, and also through other AI digital assistants and in other ways. But the meme points out that the intelligence agencies realized they didn't have to spy on you. Given the means, they knew you were going to tell them everything yourself, and that's what we're looking at with Silicon Valley. Get the people to tell you what you want to know. The irony of all this is, one of the scams that's played is government or authority will say they're going to clamp down on internet giants like Facebook and get them to clamp down on fake news on their platform. And the internet giants will say, well, we don't really want to censor, but you've been told we got to. We don't want fake news on our platform. And that gives them the excuse to do what they were going to do anyway, and are doing. The irony of all this is that the internet giants say they're targeting fake news, which is just a scam to target content and content creators challenging the official narrative. And there is fake news circulating through social media and YouTube. Of course there is. But the real target of this whole fake news scam is, ironically, those who actually do check facts and do their research before communicating information. Far more research than the mainstream media ever does. And provides far more evidence and information to back up the claims than the mainstream media ever does. That's the irony of the fake news scam. The authorities want fake news. Social media, the internet giants, want fake news because it gives them the excuse to target genuine alternative information. That is challenging the official narrative. That's what it's about. And the two defences against this war on alternative information, challenging the official narrative, is to use as many methods as possible to communicate information. Social media is a great platform. I've used it myself over the years. I still use it here and there. Most of the information I communicate now is through pay-per-view, but I still use it. And it's a great platform, but we need to use as many different methods as possible. Those of us communicating alternative information. And the other defense is to make sure that the information you communicate is factual. You've done the research, you've checked the facts. You know what you're talking about. Because if it can be shown that alternative information, some of it, has validity, and especially if it can be shown that it actually provides context and connections, which is what pay-per-view is all about, then there's a reason to continue to allow it to be circulated. But if people just say anything, which they should be allowed to say, I'm all for that, but if people do just say anything, then authority can jump on that, and the internet giants can jump on that and say, well, there's spread in misinformation means that we have to do more to combat fake news, etc., which is what this article is talking about. So we have to be solid in terms of the veracity of information we communicate while communicating it in the most effective ways possible. So that's it for this week. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.